So we're working through this um, narrative. It's a story. It's written as a story, a fantastic story, the story of Esther in, um, in the court, in the Persian Empire court of King Xerxes. Uh, historical figure, historical events, uh, and it just remi- it's good to remind ourselves again, isn't it, that this is a historical event with God working in the midst of the greatest powers in the world. It's remarkable to think about that. Uh, but what we see here, well, we see lots of different things, but the, the particular issue that we're going to focus on this afternoon is the issue of living in a political world. We live in a political world, don't we? We have absolutely no choice whatsoever. Every single one of us are affected by politics. Uh, the, the, the process of bringing governance to the land, the fact that it affects us no matter where we are, no matter who we are, we are affected. You know, kids, the fact that you go to school is a political decision. Um, there's all sorts of other reasons behind it, but it's a political decision. Uh, the fact that we uh, pay taxes is a political decision. The fact that if we don't pay taxes, we're in trouble is also a political decision. Uh, so in, on a grand scale, we live in the middle of that. Uh, and at the same time, we also live in the... Uh, in, if, if that's the organization and the, the governance of society in, uh, on a big stage, we also live in the reality, most of us live in the reality of politic on a small scale, whether it's the office or the workplace or, or the, um, the street in which we live or the structures of organization that we happen to be part of. However, there is also the impact on, on many of us in terms of the, you know, the day-to-day you know, the politics of the workplace and, and the fact that there is governance within that and there is structure and there are decisions that are being made that we are day-to-day having to respond to. That's our lives. We are day-to-day responding to, um, if you like, edicts or structures or forms of society and governance over us. The question that we face Uh, is as believers in Jesus, how do we respond to that? How should we live in the face of all of those kinds of questions? You might not be a believer uh, at this point. You might be interested in the Christian faith. It might be something that you're beginning to come to terms with. You might have been looking at it for a long time. Maybe one of the barriers that you see is that... um, you, you, you end up trying to wonder, how does this fit in to the fact that I also exist in a political structure in this country? How does that faith that these people uh, hold to, how do they live that out? How does that work? It might be a barrier to you. It might equally be something that you are interested in. Well, what we see here in this story is we see God's people wrapped up in the reality of that world. That's what we see. Just to recap the big story that we have 
uh, in front of us. At the beginning of, the, uh, of our reading, what we see is that um, we have two, our two characters uh, appearing again, Mordecai and Esther. Um, if we can just get that up, the reading up on the screen, that'd be great. Mordecai and Esther. Uh, once again, we see that those two people are, they are the focus of the story. And they are God's people, they are Jews, and they are living not in the land of the Jews. They're not living in Jerusalem, they're living in Susa. Uh, and they are mixed up in the whole of the structure. Esther has already been taken against her will as a young woman, probably in the sort of mid-teenage kind of age. She's been taken into uh, the harem of King Xerxes, and she has, uh, she's ended up the queen. So this young woman is within, within a very short space of time, relatively speaking, her life is completely, dramatically changed. She was previously living with her older cousin, Mordecai, she was an orphan. Her mother and father had died. She was living with Mordecai. If you like, there was this uh, an environment of security and protection. And then she finds herself thrust into the middle of the royal court. Mordecai, at the same time, what we find is that he is also uh, involved in the royal court. Uh, we see that he's outside of the court. Well, you wouldn't have been able to get outside of the court uh, unless you were, you know, part of the structure, if you like. Um, we, we see that he's, he's there and he's, he's engaged in all of this. We see that they are God's people, but they are also in the middle of the political dimensions and issues that are going on. Now, that's really important because that fact, allows these two individuals to relate to us if we believe in Jesus. One of the things that we see in the New Testament, which brings, if you like, a parallel to this experience, is that uh, Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says this, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. You'll have a passport probably, most of us, different countries, we are citizens of all sorts of different countries here. We are citizens of that country. In other words, as citizens, we are called, we are demanded to live according to the demands of citizenship of that country. And while we are living in this country, we are called to observe the demands of citizenship or uh, living under the law of this country. And yet, what the Bible says is that we have a different identity as believers. It is that deep. The Christian faith is not some sort of a, an add-on. It's not some sort of a, well, I'm interested in this as a kind of a hobby. It is a dramatic, life-changing, reorientating, redefining change in life. We are citizens. But what is a citizen? Somebody who comes under a particular, a particular monarch or leading structure. We have a new king. We come under a new law. We dwell in a different country. 
That's one of the things about citizenship. And yet what we see here in, Philipp- in the, the letter to Philippi is that we are citizen. Our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't look like, to be perfectly honest, it doesn't feel like, does it? On a day-to-day basis, it does not feel as if our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't feel as if we come under that law. It feels as though most of the time we are pulled and twisted and stretched and shaped, not by those laws, but by the laws around us. And yet what Paul says is that we are, whether we feel as though we are or not, we are citizens of heaven. Now the confidence that he has in that is that we can be so confident in that, as he puts it, we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, um, we might not feel as if our citizenship is like that, but we are so confident in that citizenship because we believe that Jesus is going to return. Because we believe he is the king enthroned in heaven. Uh, and he will return as saviour. That's the kind of idea that Paul has. And yet at the same time, we could very easily say, Do you know, I, I actually feel far more like Mordecai and Esther. I, I'm not living in the political structure of heaven. I'm living in the political structure of this world. We see it really starkly here. Esther is caught up in the royal court. She is surrounded by intrigue and scheming. And while she is in that royal court, Mordecai gets dragged into it as well. I think the the two characters that are named here, I think they're just fantastic names. They sound like just your archetypal gangsters, don't they? Certainly one of them does. Uh, Big Thana just sounds like he should have you know, kind of, you know, love and hate tattooed on his knuckles and be this great big bruiser guy. Big Thana and Teresh. As Mordecai is outside of the court, he hears a conspiracy. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? People aspire to greatness. People aspire to position. You know, but when you're there, it's actually very precarious, isn't it? It's very insecure. Here we have Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world at that point in time, the known world. Uh, And yet what we see is two men who are conspiring to take his life. When you look at the history of the ancient world, when you look at even our history today, when you see the intrigue, when you see the backstabbing, when you see the fact that being up there does not provide any kind of security, what, what an incredible portrayal of the reality of the world that we live in. And Mordecai is dragged into that. Mordecai becomes the point of crisis as well. So, so the first stage is that he gets dragged into this conspiracy in the sense that he hears it. And his response is to protect the king. The next part of the story is that we see that the king then, disconnected it seems, it seems, the king then 
in it, uh, elevates this man named Haman, and, the, and then Mordecai behaves in a different way in relation to Haman. I'm going to look at that contrast. He behaves in one way with regards to Xerxes, and he behaves in a different way with regards to Haman. And he ends up dragged, not just him personally dragged into it, but the result of the animosity as a result of Mordecai's behavior is that his life is threatened and every, the life of every other Jew in the whole of the Persian Empire. Everybody is threatened. We read in verse 6 of chapter, uh, chapter 3. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned, this is Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, all the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. What a remarkable decision is to take every single one of Mordecai's people for a decision that Mordecai makes individually. That's massive, isn't it? He makes a personal decision and countless numbers of people end up with their life threatened. So let's have a look at those two. The first thing that we see is this coup d'etat, a blow against the state, Big Thanner and Teresh. And we see that Mordecai, in that situation, honors what God has established. That's the principle by which he lives. He sees, he understands, his confidence is that Xerxes is not there by chance, but is appointed by God. And when he hears the unlawful conspiracy to take the king's life, Mordecai decides to behave in a way which honors the rule of law. It's remarkable, isn't it? I think it's remarkable because of this. If you just stop and think, this isn't just a, this isn't just a distant decision. The person who is threatened is the man who has taken and raped, effectively, his younger cousin. That's who is threatened, Xerxes. And Mordecai makes the decision to protect that person. When he hears about the conspiracy, these two guys who are going to take the king's life, he gets the message to Esther, and the message from Esther gets to the king, and Mordecai assures that the king is protected. We read, it's almost like a little sidebar, in every great story writing way, there's a little kind of throwaway comment, which becomes incredibly important in a, in a week or so's time, where we read that, uh, there was um, investigation is made as to whether the threat is true. Uh, and when it's found to be true, these two men are executed and it is recorded 
in the annals of the king. So it's written down, this information is recorded, and credit is given to Mordecai. <coughs> Throw away a little comment, it seems, at this time. Keep it in your mind, those of you who know the story, so know how important that is. So we find that Mordecai, in this particular way, behaves in a way which is consistent. I think it's remarkable the way he behaves. I think really the idea of living faithfully, consistently, living confidently, believing that something that seems to be so outrageous, seems to be so um, out of control, and yet he remains faithful to the way he ought to live. It becomes even more remarkable as time goes on. But let's just stick with it for a moment because I think it has profound implications for us today. How therefore should we live? We are called, New Testament makes it clear, we are called to honor those who rule over us in a way that understands that they are appointed by God. (laughs) Do you think that? automatically when we think about those who are in rule over us. We live in a democracy. There is a, there is a difference to some extent. We live in a democracy. We don't live in the autocracy of a Xerxes state. We have the privilege of democracy. But at the end of the day, the perspective that we live under is the outcome is not the outcome of the will of the people, but it is the will of God. That's a remarkably different way to live. Therefore, the things that go on, the decisions that happen, the way things unfold, and the way that this story encourages us to think about the way life works, is that things work out not according to the will of the people, although it appears to be that way, but according to the will of God. And our, des- our calling is to remain faithful within that context. Now, it's re- even more amazing because it becomes the very decision that he makes to protect the king within the next few verses becomes a decision that threatens his life. <laughs> he saves Xerxes. He gets the information through Esther to Xerxes. And then the next verses tell us that that very man who he saved appoints to honor Haman. And Haman becomes his nemesis. (laughs) Haman becomes the one who becomes the very point of conflict. Isn't that amazing? How tempted How tempted would Mordecai at that point be to say, do you know what? What Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Why didn't I just leave it and allow the conspiracy to work its way out? Do you feel like that sometimes? Do you look at the way things unfold? And you think, and I think, that if I hadn't done that, then that wouldn't have happened and this crisis wouldn't be upon me now. I've done the right thing, but the way it's worked out 
It's just a disaster. You think, why did I do that? Why didn't I just twist it a little bit? Why didn't I just keep quiet? Why did I end up being honest and truthful and it's worked out to my disadvantage? I shouldn't have done it. (laughs) I think one of the things that this reminds us is we need to be very confident that being faithful, being faithful to God does not guarantee a successful outcome personally. It it does ultimately, but in a different way. It might not seem as though the outcome is the very best. Yet faithfulness is what we are called to. We are called to be faithful, whether it works out right or not. Do we live that out? Do we live out in a way which says... I will do that because it's the right thing to do. Or do I wonder whether I could just... um, We're all guilty of it, aren't we? We are all guilty of taking the decisions and manipulating and twisting and trying to structure our lives rather than living faithfully. And it doesn't have to be the big political decisions, does it? It's the matters of relationship and, and, and connection with others and the decisions that we make day to day in the office, in work, uh, in the street, in the place where we uh, spend leisure time, in the organizations that we are part of. In other words, for Mordecai, he is absolutely committed to be the person that he is, which is a follower of God. He is committed to that. And I think the only way that we can be confident of that is when we remember what Paul says to the church at Philippi. The only way that I can be confident is when I remember that my citizenship is in heaven and Jesus is going to return. In other words, my security is not the outcome of the way things work out in the immediate or in the next six months or 12 months or 18 months. I have a long perspective. I have an eternal perspective which says no matter how it works out, my calling is to live faithfully because I know that Jesus, my Savior, will return and will be my King. It's a remarkably different way to live. And we can only live, I think, faithfully with that confidence when we have that view. Otherwise, we will constantly be trying to make sure that things work out right now. So we have, on the one hand, we have Mordecai living uh, faithfully. The next is remarkable as well. Enter the next character in the story, Haman, the Agagite. He's king, uh, he's of the family of King Agag. Remarkable. If you go and have a look in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, you see the story of Saul and and King Agag, the Amalekites. You go back to Numbers and you see that this man is connected, Haman is connected to a people group who have constantly been the opposers of God's people. Isn't that remarkable? The way the story unfolds, the way 
characters are introduced, the way the fact that he is who he is is not historically disconnected, but is used as, if you like, a picture, a perspective that says, just remember that this guy, he might be who he is now, but he carries, if you like, a picture for us. It reminds us that God's people are going to be continuously opposed. He represents that. He represents that ongoing challenge of those who are uh, rebelling or those who are loving the God who created the world. So here's Haman. And King Xerxes honors him. It would appear as though he honors him maybe to second in the whole of the kingdom. We can't even get our heads around this in terms of, we are such a privileged people. We might, we might think it's just a pain and it's just shocking and there's scandal all, and there is scandal all over the place because we are ordinary human beings and we are governed by ordinary human beings. But we are a privileged people to live in the democracy that we live in rather than in the autocracy that can take lives like that. We are a privileged people. Let's not lose sight of that. Haman is now second, it would seem, in power in the kingdom. He has the right to take people's lives by his decision. He has the ability to create, as we will see, the death of maybe a million or so people. His power is remarkable. And now we see if Mordecai lives faithfully according to the law, in this situation with Xerxes, we now see him living in a completely different way. Haman demands that everybody bows down and worships him as he travels around. One of those situations, isn't it? You know, in a strange way, we we see it still. That there is that, there there might not be the expectation of the literal bowing down. But the reality is that there are many who live in our world who expect the accolade, who expect the recognition, because that is part of the problem of the human condition. When we make ourselves the center, when we reject the notion of a greater God who is worthy of worship, and we decide that we are the ones who are worthy of worship, the only outcome to that is that our elevation, for me to be elevated, means that you are knocked down. You are suppressed. For for me to be elevated requires for you to be broken, to be less than me. For me to be elevated creates a gap between you and me. And it still works out in our society today. It's just that in this particular situation, it's just so evident on a really crass level. We see Haman, 
and he wanders around the streets, probably carried on a, on a throne, born by, um, by uh, slaves, or, or pulled in a car, in a, a, a great sort of uh, coach, or whatever it might be. And the demand is that as soon as he appears in sight, you and I, if we were in Susa at that particular point in time, we would be required to bow down. We would be required to bow down. It's interesting, isn't it? Mordecai up to now, it seems as though he's been silent about who he is. He certainly told Esther not to make it known that she's a Jew. In other words, when the, when the general ongoing life is happening, it's, he's just who he is in that place. But when the chips are down, when he's absolutely confronted with the issue, he knows who he is. And he stands, literally, rather than bowing, he stands in the tradition. He places himself in the history of Daniel and his followers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we read it in the book of Daniel, the same empire, well, the, the the continuation of the same empire. Great statue is built. The king demands that everybody bows down and worships this statue. The king has determined who people should worship. In exactly the same way as this situation, the king has determined who people should worship. In the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's a golden statue. In the case of this situation. It's a living person. But the same principle exists. The king is determining who you worship. And in this case, Mordecai says, whoa, hang on, no, no. The, in other words, and this is so important, there are moments when we are absolutely called to be faithful to the rule of the law of the land. There are. That is our first calling. But it is not at the expense of first honoring God. It is not at the expense of first honoring God. When, it, when the demands of the world that we live in, when the demands of the state that we live in, when the demands of the rulers that, that we live under contravene the primary demands of the God who we love, then we are called to honor the God who we love. And that costs. That costs. But that is what we see here. There are moments where our faith is going to cost. It might not be that great sort of state moment. It might be on a much smaller scale. It might be the politic of the street that you live in or your family. It might be the politic of your workplace. But there will be moments in time when we will be called not to bow down and to worship what everybody else is worshipping. In other words, not to prioritize and honor that in a way which is greater than honoring first 
God who we love and who has first loved us. That costs. Royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Do you see that? It's not, why do you disobey Haman's command? It's, why do you disobey the king's command? In other words, what Haman demands has all of the authority of the king himself. Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Do you know what? You think to yourself, Mordecai, just just bow down and cross your fingers, won't you? (laughs) Don't you think? Just, you know... Keep your eyes open and cross your fingers behind your back. Just do something to keep the peace. That's the temptation, isn't it? That is the temptation to say, I'll, I'll just make it easy. You know what? It's, it's not just affecting me. It's affecting people around me. Are there moments when you know and, and I know, I know, when I've been called to that, and I know that I've crossed my fingers behind my back. You know, on the little things of life, where I've said, you know what, it's just easier to bow down. It's just, it's just easier. And this just reminds me to say, do you know what? That's not how I ought to live. It's not how I ought to live. I ought to live in a way which, which isn't just kind of browbeaten by this God. But rather, this God loves me so much that he has given himself for me. And he calls me to live according firstly to his law, which in general terms honors the law of the land, but at times when it might contravene those around, maybe maybe just on an interpersonal basis, I'm called to be faithful to him first. You know the Christian church in the first, cent- first three centuries, under Roman rule, it was not actually unlawful uh, to worship your own God. So the idea of worshipping the Christian God was not unlawful. What was unlawful is not worshipping the God of the city or the God of the state as well. You could have complete liberty to worship your own gods, but you were called to worship the God of the city or the God of the state. Christians at that time found that they were in conflict. They found that they were called to worship something which was effectively being unfaithful to the God who they worship. But it was deeper. You see, the way it worked was something like this. A city would have its own God. Pretty much every city had its own deity. The the deity of this city. The deity that everybody in this city worships because that's what keeps the city going. That's what makes the city prosperous. That's what makes the city do well. And if anybody within this city starts... uh, decrying or disobeying or not worshipping that God. You know, it's a society thing. 
It's a problem for the whole of society. You are destabilizing. You're being unfair to all of us. Do you realize the impact that you're having by not worshiping the deity of our city? You you know, you can worship your God, but you are destabilizing society. And it cost them their lives. And the outcome of that persecution was that the message of Jesus grew during those few centuries, probably at as great a level as the Christian church has ever experienced. What a paradox. Because those who were being faithful were displaying the priority of the God who they love. I think we need to hear this today. I think we need to respond to this and say, well, how does this work out in my life? Because the Christian faith is not something that is, it's not something that, this is what this is showing, it's not something that's just sidelined. It's something which I do in private. It's something which is just hidden away. It has day-to-day implications. It has issues of life. It has challenges. It has challenges to the political structure of the environments in which I live. And my first citizenship is a citizenship of heaven. That is where I am first citizen. Just in case, as we close, just in case we think that that sounds as though the God of the Bible places all of these demands on us and stands back and says, you just make sure you obey me. Just in case we think that that is the case. We need to keep two things in mind. Firstly, we need to remind ourselves that the purpose of this story in the book of Esther is to remind us that God is working it out even when it doesn't seem as though it is in control. And secondly, we need to remind ourselves of this, that that very God does not stand distant from the politic of this world, but threw himself into it. He threw himself into it. Let me read you a few verses that just really make it clear. It's about the death of Jesus. And it shows how Jesus, in his death, is at the very center of a political controversy, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. I think that's fascinating. If you take your mind back to a few weeks ago, you remember that one of the things that Xerxes did was he made a law and he wrote it in all of the languages. It's as if he was making sure that the law just gets out there to everybody. That is exactly, exactly what Pilate does. 
He writes a law and he writes it in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Or he makes a declaration. He says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And he's dead on a cross. He's dead on a cross. That's the King of the Jews dead on the cross. That is a massive political statement. In fact, it is so political that we read on, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So here's Jesus, who's uh, at the very center of a political tussle. Pilate says, here's the opportunity. I'm going to make these Jews have it. I'm going to rub their nose in it. I'm going to make a declaration in three languages. This is their king, dead. It's the end of it. And the Jews see the implications. They see the implications of that and they say, he didn't actually say, don't say that, say that he said he's the king of the Jews. Not that he is. We've never said he's the king of the Jews. He's made that claim. Don't associate us with him because they understood that in the middle of this political battle that Jesus seemed to be the focal point of, that they were at their reputation, their position of authority was at stake. This is the king dead? No, it's not the king dead. He said he was the king. Don't take his word for it. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. It just looks like chaos, doesn't it? And yet, that very moment where it looks like a political game of ping pong, Jesus is saving his people. Isn't that remarkable? Something way bigger than the issue of whether he's the king of the Jews and whether he's a political uh, pawn in a game between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. Something way bigger is going on in exactly the same way as we see here. Where Mordecai is standing on what God has called him to do and it seems as though the wheel is falling off, something way bigger is going on. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. All things work together for good. All things. Not just the things that happen to you and to me, but everything. In other words, God has the whole world and its purposes in his hands for the good of his people. That is a remarkable statement to make. And yet that's what this text calls us to see. Because the God who declares it is not a God who is distant. He is a God who has immersed himself and works it out way bigger than our political battles. What a great confidence we have in that saviour.